0: Hello, welcome to the Eclipse Viewer. This is episode 44 of our monthly podcast dedicated to the Criterion Collection's Eclipse series of overlooked lost and forgotten classics, DVD editions that uh, feature uh, films that might not be uh, exactly in the mainstream, might be a little bit off the beaten track, uh, but are always interesting and uh, certainly worthy of uh, discussion, analysis, and uh, contemplation. My name is David Blakesley. I'm the host of this program, along with Trevor Barrett, my regular co-host. Trevor, how are you doing this today?
1: Hey, I'm doing great. This is um, episode 44, and there are 44 boxes in the Eclipse series, David. Next time we'll be we'll be jumping over their number. <laughs> That's
0: right. Yeah, we've kind of maxed out, but but yeah, it's because we've uh, split a few episodes or a few boxes into multiple parts. And uh, we'll be doing a little bit more of that in the weeks and months to come. But, uh, yeah, yeah, we've uh, kind of matched the Eclipse series as far as installments are concerned. Uh, and we'll see if they've got any more in store for us uh, yeah, with future announcements and all of that. Uh, but today we are also joined by a guest, Pablo Canota. And he is a, a friend of mine that I've made acquaintances with recently. He was a listener who just contacted us by email and uh, made himself available to talk about uh, this particular set of films. Uh, we're going to be talking about Eclipse series uh, 28, The Warped World of Koryoshi Kurahara. Uh, Pablo, good morning.
2: Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm very delighted to have you, Pablo. Um, you uh, you know, reached out and you know, just kind of made a connection. Let us know that you've been an avid listener for the Eclipse Viewer and uh, that certainly, I appreciate that. I appreciate everybody who sort of tunes in. Uh, but as I, you know, kind of looked into your work a little bit, we exchanged a few emails. I recognize, you know, you've got you've got some very interesting things to say, and a, and a real deep, abiding passion for Japanese cinema uh, that's gone not just with uh, the Criterion and the Eclipse series offerings, but into uh, films that might be even more obscure and hard to obtain for a lot of us. Uh, Here in the West So Pablo, I'd like to just give you a few minutes to introduce yourself And tell people about your work
2: Yes, Uh, I'm Pablo, as David said And I'm a writer and researcher on Japanese film uh, Foremost uh, on the internet I founded nipponminuskino.net Germany's first and only website solely dedicated to the Japanese cinema The classical Japanese cinema Of the 50s and the 60s Um, I'm trying to do a sort of encyclopedia with uh, biographies and film reviews. It's sadly written uh, in Germany, in German only, sorry. But uh, you can find most of my reviews in English at easternkicks.com. And you can also check other works out uh, at uh, worldcinemaparadise.com and tasteofcinema.com.
0: Well, excellent. You know, I have had a chance to read a little bit of your English writing, and I was particularly impressed with an essay you wrote on the uh, works of Kahachi Okamoto. Um, I recently reviewed... uh, Kill which was part of the uh, Rebel Samurai set that Criterion released uh, quite a few years ago maybe 10 years ago or more uh, maybe 11 years ago and uh, and as I was kind of putting links together I happened to come across your essay on Okamoto's work of course he's probably most famous for his uh, you know sort of the sort of doom which was uh, uh, upgraded to Blu-ray last year and uh, you know kind of made a big splash uh, as uh, you know people really appreciate this uh, incredibly uh, dark and nihilistic uh, take on the samurai genre. The Kill showed a different side of Okamoto's talent and, and his vision in which uh, he kind of you know, upended the samurai uh, cliches, if you will, in, in somewhat of a comedic and satirical take. But yeah, Pablo, I was I was very impressed by this particular essay, and I was even more impressed when I, reco- when I learned after our conversation that yeah, you wrote this as a thesis for graduating from high school. So tell us just a little bit more about some of your scholarship, your studies. Uh, maybe if you want to talk about Okamoto for a moment, uh, that's fine, but just yeah, tell us a little bit more about what you've been uh, putting together uh, over the last several years.
2: Well, I'm basically self-taught. I have no uh, sort of academic education, but uh, yeah, I I, uh, the first Japanese film I watched was Ugetsu Monogatari when I was still uh, very young, about 15 or 16, and uh, from the start uh, I wanted to write about these films that I had fallen in love with, so to say. And as time progressed I soon got better at, at what I'm doing, and no, I actually believe that uh, you can take me relatively seriously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I no, you have done your homework, and you you really have a passion for these films, and I feel like uh, you know uh, whether I have to hit the old Google Translate and get some of those uh, Germans uh, <laughs> roughly you know, approximated into English uh, just to to learn more. Uh, your your website Nippon Kino is it is it NipponKino.com? is that the domain it's, there uh, .net. .net. Okay, yeah, I thought maybe it was .net. Okay, so there is a link in our show notes in any case. So just go to Criterion CriterionCast uh, and follow up, and, and you'll get an access to to Pablo's work. And uh, certainly I look forward to hearing uh, what you have to say about uh, this morning, uh, this morning about these films. Uh, this is going to be a two-part episode. The Warp World of Kuryoshi Kurahara is one of those uh, five film sets where if we were really just to try to cram all five of these Movies into one episode, we would not do them justice. Even though some of the films are pretty short uh, and and even somewhat to the point, uh, you know, five of these films in in one talk would just be running roughshod. (laughs) So we are going to split this up. We're going to be doing the first three films, uh, which are Intimidation, the Warped Ones, and I Hate But Love. Uh, all released between 1960 and 1962. That'll be the contents of uh, episode 44. Next week, we'll do episode 45, and that will be uh, including the last two films in the set, which are Black Sun from 1964 and Thirst for Love from 1967. So, uh, Pablo, we, uh, you and Trevor and I do have plans to get back together next Saturday. So uh, for people who want to get a comprehensive look at this set, uh, you'll have to give a listen uh, to what we have to say next week. So Trevor, let me get you in the conversation as well. Uh, I I will take a wild guess and say this is probably your first time watching these films.
1: Oh, yep. Good guess, David. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been
0: at this for a little while. so <laughs> You know so, how I function.
1: <laughs> absolutely. So so
0: tell us a little bit about what you thought about these movies.
1: Oh, it was fun. I I honestly didn't know anything about these films, what they might contain, the tone in them, you know, the warped world. Uh, okay, is this going to be more like, um, uh, you know, the Klein set, that kind of uh, stuff, or, you know, uh, more like Oshima? Well, what, what do we have here? And it's interesting that there's quite a varied tone in these first three films um you know we've got one that's kind of a nice little uh uh kind of heist film in a way a, a little bit of uh, corporate trouble uh then we've got one that uh, certainly reminded me of breathless with its uh, just uh, angry youth and uh, roller coaster ride And then we've got one that's kind of this nice little hopeful road journey, (laughs) in a way, um, that looks at uh, the plight of a very famous person. And, you know, each of them is very, uh, very different. And so it was impressive to see how varied Kurahara is, how many interests he had, and how he was able to... To use his skills to to kind of accentuate the themes he wanted to look at and explore these the the situation these people were in, so I'm I'm very interested to see more of what he's done. Um, I'm glad that not only do we have next week to talk about him, but you know we'll we'll talk about him again when we do the Nikatsu Noir set um, later on. And so this was a a, a very fun set. It's definitely um, a step above where we were last. Uh, last week and that's a big or last month and that's a big step in my mind um after talking about the Corda set this is a nice uh, refreshing dip back into into my favorite types of Eclipse releases where they introduced me to some amazing skill um some some unique uh uh storytelling and um you know it's it's nice to also be back in the Japanese realm though those tend to be some of my favorite sets so this is this is definitely up there
0: very cool, well, yeah, Kurahara. i mean you mentioned trevor the the variety of of genres and and filmmaking styles, and I think that's that 's one of the things that uh is is quite fascinating to me about this set. Kuryoshi Kurahara was a very successful commercial Japanese filmmaker and yet he really doesn't have that reputation as this uh, great auteur uh, like, uh, well, you know, again, we talked about the classics, the Kurosawa Ozu Mizuguchi, or sort of the, the cult directors, uh, uh, Imamura and uh, Suzuki and Oshima and Okamoto. people who... Uh, Okamoto, yeah, right, Okamoto, we just talked about, right, Who who have a very, you know, defined sort of characteristics to their films and, and you can go from one film to the next and sort of see them sort of, you know, establishing this this platform of of a of a cinematic voice and vision that is very distinctive to who they are you just you, well there are some things that there are some stylistic things about Kurohara that do connect these films uh, uh particularly the the shots uh, from the ground going up into the sky or from the sky going down into the ground and you know Chuck Stevens, uh, who kind of did a guest turn in the liner notes for this uh, series, uh you know giving Michael Koreski a little bit of a break, i guess uh you know he draws attention to. Uh, Kurahara's stylistic uh, choices: uh, these these ground shots, these kind of handheld shots that kind of suddenly swoop and swerve up into the sky, sometimes right straight into the sun, uh, or through the branches of the trees, uh, or these the, these top down perspectives where it's kind of a god's eye view of, of humans swarming around like insects, or or uh, you know just kind of this this these crowd shots, or or just kind of this spinning. Uh, you know perspective of of uh you know people traveling and vehicles buzzing through streets and just kind of putting human activity into this kind of abstracted light there it's yeah, these, these are the uh, the kind of the visual things that Kurohara does that maybe link these films together but genre wise and 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 um you know what kind of films he was making he he does seem like a director for hire who was very willing to take on the jobs that the studio gave him, at least for a portion of his career, and uh, he went on to have a very marked uh, commercial success, Uh, but as I was doing some research, as I I often do to put my links together for the page, I was actually rather surprised at how very little information I could find on Kurahara himself. I, I mean, there's a Wikipedia article, and there's a few things that you can find, but there just doesn't seem to be much that talks about him as a personality in the same way that some of those other directors I just mentioned, uh, they have their own kind of you know, personal flair and, and, and uniqueness and, and their artistic sensibility. Kurohara is almost like a non-figure. So fill us in, Pablo. Tell us a little bit about Kurohara from what you've been able to research.
2: Well, as you've said, he was commercially incredibly successful, especially in the 80s. Uh, but, uh, as you mentioned, he's, he was extremely eclectic, so it's rather hard to classify him. And that's part of his of his appeal, in my opinion, that uh, some people regard him as a commercially motivated hack, uh, and some even as a member of the Japanese Nouvelle Vogue, so the Japanese New, New Wave, which uh, was around at the same time as Kurahara. Uh, And both sides would be correct uh, in some ways. He certainly made uh, commercial features, especially in the later part of his career, which didn't have much in terms of artistic quality to them. But uh, especially in the 60s, especially at Nikatsu, he also made, as we will see, some very bold and even provocative films. Uh, And if I may add... There's maybe one theme that is in many uh, Kurahara films in terms of storytelling. Uh, he often criticizes the hypocrisy of post war society. Uh, I think this is definitely in, in uh, intimidation and also in the warped ones, and uh, to a lesser extent also in hate, I Hate But Love. But love
0: yeah i I, I think that 's a very valid observation there is content wise uh you know the kind of exposure of of exploitation of of uh, kind of uh, class differences of privilege versus uh, deprivation, uh, who who gets the good stuff and who's kind of left on the fringes. Yeah, th- those definitely are, are themes that I think even connect these three films. Uh, you know, who are the, the beautiful people, who are the rich, the successful, the admired ones, and are they really worthy or deserving of this lofty status? And then the kind of humble or even beleaguered, taken-for-granted uh, maybe or despised and rejected. You know, maybe those people have something more going for them in terms of integrity and determination and and <laughs> strength of character than surface appearances might otherwise dictate. So yeah, you're right. There is a kind of a a cultural critique going on of, of a subversive sort. So yeah, thank you for bringing that to our attention.
2: And perhaps, uh, if I may add, uh, the question: If he was a Nouvelle Work director, I hear it uh, uh, being asked all the time when I read about Kurahara, and perhaps uh, I have to add that uh, there was never such a thing as a movement in the strict sense of the word of a Nouvelle work. it was uh, yeah, directors who were mostly unconnected from each other and it was really a national movement. Every major director from the 60s made at least one film which could be considered uh, provocative or uh, just very innovative. And uh, I have um, studied this subject for a bit and I found out that you can basically... Uh, that there are basically two types of novel work directors. Those who are very iconoclastic... Uh, who wanted to work outside of the studio system and made films with political contents, and studio directors who were very much within the industry and made commercial films, yet who also had a unique philosophy or a characteristic uh, visual style. And um, I would say that Kurahara belonged very much to the second part of this group, at least during the 60s, uh, at least until 1967 when he was dismissed, to which, to which we will come later. And that's just as a little side note. I thought this might be interesting.
0: Oh, I think I think it's very interesting because there is this question, well, where do these films come from? How do they fit into the overall scene? And I, do, I, I, I agree and I appreciate what you're saying about the fact that there was no Nouvelle Vague in the way that... Uh, you, you know the uh you know Cahier du cinema was a very sort of almost ideologically driven a very self-conscious you know we are a movement apart we are a subsect and even within the nouvelle vague you've got the the right bank and the left bank within the french society and and the different subcultures there uh with japan there was just a whole other thing going on and i think we really do uh kind of indulge in hindsight with uh, labeling all these different um, cinematic movements as new waves of different sort, uh, where they may not have been as uh, consciously regarded as such by the participants that we now see as you know the new wave directors whether that's the japanese new wave or the czech new wave or the american hollywood new wave uh, or or any number of other new waves the, the english new wave i mean it's just sort of become this nice little tag along where we can say okay that was the you know the uh, emergence of a new freedom or a new uh, fresh voice or something a breakaway from the stodginess of The predictable standards. And, you know, I mean, the 1960s across the entire world were a time of incredible cultural upheaval. And so the the cinema of various nations reflects what was going on in those societies. And so, yeah, it is kind of a convenient uh, shorthand to say, yeah, well, this is the new wave of that nation you know, over that that culture but you know it you know if we want to have an accurate historical understanding i think it's it's better to put this in the broader context and i think these films definitely do bring us into into touch with what was happening in japan in just you know the popular movies that everyday folks would go to and 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 I like sort of seeing that on a, a historical or cultural analytical perspective to see you know it wasn't it wasn't just these idiosyncratic voices like you know, like the Oshima's like as you say he's a example of that first style very political a very direct message a very uh, you know, and we talked in our Oshima episodes uh, several months ago about how he really had these ambitions of wanting to, you know, kind sort of overthrow the government and recast Japanese society. I mean, very grandiose, actually. Uh, Kurahara certainly didn't aspire to, <laughs> to such h- historic, uh, you know, shifting of of pu- public consciousness. He was, he really was making entertainment that tried to, you know. Connect with people in a certain level, but also to perhaps challenge and provoke, and you definitely see that in in the warped ones, which I think is is still a fairly shocking movie yeah. even by today's standards. But really, all three of these do tap into the public consciousness, and so uh yeah, I don't know. Uh, Let's just kind of get into these movies. We've done a pretty nice overview of, of Kurohara. Uh, the box set itself, I guess I'll just say a little bit, was released back in 2011. It was very well regarded uh, at that time. I think I, I remember hearing in different podcasts and blogs and reviews that this was a really vital uh, addition to the Eclipse series. And I continue to recommend it as, as a, a great jump-off point just because you get so much variety and so much... Uh, what I would say is entertainment value. I mean, uh, maybe not every all five of these films are going to hit your sweet spot, but there's probably something. I mean, if you're the kind of movie watcher who's interested in the Eclipse series at all, you're going to find something pretty compelling in this set just because it covers such a broad swath of territory. So, yeah, so uh, why don't we go ahead and get into uh, our first film? Pablo, you were going to give us a little summary and introduction to Intimidation from 1960, the first film in the set, so... Uh, take it away.
2: Perfect, yes. Uh, intimidation is about two old school friends, Takita and Nakaike, who are working at a bank. And uh, Takita is a, a very ambitious um, um, young mid-level chef, I, I believe, mid-level boss. Yeah, um, assistant who, manager, I think, at this time Assistant manager, time of day. yes, exactly. Who is about to get promoted. and um, uh, Also because... He is uh, in a liaison with the branch manager's daughter. Uh, Nakaike, on the other hand, is a very timid, uh, normal office clerk who is rather jealous of uh, Takita. Uh, things start to go awry when Takita is blackmailed uh, because of some um, illegal loon- loans he had taken from his bank. And to pay off his ransom, he decides to rob his bank uh, shegan 's on food
0: yeah that 's a that 's a pretty great lead in there because yeah yeah, yeah there 's a nice setup and all of a sudden wow you 've got this tension you 've got a guy right on the brink of a a huge promotion and and sort of in the Japanese style, they're giving him a very elaborate send-off party where all the men are seated and kind of the perimeter of the room. And there's hand clapping and there's dancing and there's, you know, toasts and celebrations and all the lofty rhetoric. And and, and even within the the custom of sending off this emerging young leader there's this kind of cynical act ah, you know you know that kind of makes me sick to listen to all that nonsense because you know there was a certain formality that i'm sure was was pretty common in not just the banking industry but probably japanese industries of all sorts i mean you see some of this in uh kurosawa films from the same period like the bad sleep well where there's this kind of this this salaryman culture and 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 who's kind of you know coming out on top and who are the flunkies and the the office drones that uh, kind of left left on the fringes there and and so that's that's all sort of set up but then you recognize uh that the uh the aspiring young leader has you know paved his way through little uh, acts of corruption here and there and Somebody produces some goods that says, hey, I, I can uh, kind of undo this great success that you're just about to embark upon if you don't pay up. So now you've got, yeah, you've got a bank manager who's who's uh, conspiring <laughs> to rob his own bank on the very eve of his departure going up to the central office uh, in Tokyo or whatever, where he's going to, you know, presumably take the next step to greatness. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a very particular point of tension. And, and how does this all resolve itself?
1: Well, and he's he's already done terrible things with the bank. I mean, the bank could get in a lot of trouble if the word got out that uh, one of their managers had been making uh, illegal loans. So this is someone who's climbed to the top and wants to keep climbing to the top by doing uh, terrible things and taking advantage of his position and of those around him, including one of his old friends who, you know, he recognizes his friend is, is timid and um, thinks he might be able to use that to his advantage eventually. Um, his his friend, who's actually a very uh, hard worker, you know. If we look at this on a strict dichotomy, um, we've got the just the very different personalities. While while the the assistant manager is out there, uh, getting wined and dined, his friend is more comfortable in the back room getting the sake ready. You know, he's very humble. He doesn't want to presume anything, um, uh, which upsets uh, upsets the the woman in his life because. You know, she would really like it if they could uh, get a few promotions, and she recognizes that he's he's too timid to do these things, and he and he lets the others treat him as kind of a slave that they can exploit and do what they want uh, with, uh, regardless of whether or not he's capable of doing more. You know, they're going to keep on using him as a stepping stool, and so it's it's a, it's a nice setup of the whole the whole community of characters in just that first little scene and of of their personalities and um I, I did like that uh, that um, our, our poor uh timid friend is the the one who could be one of the living skeletons <laughs> In the yeah. living skeleton later on. I was like, I recognize him. <laughs> he's yeah. he's very gaunt and you know he 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 looks more like a skeleton later on in that eclipse uh, entry of the the uh, shochiko horror, horror set came to Shochiku, yes. <laughs> yes um but he still looks uh looks rather um uh you know just not lifeless necessarily but but just a little bit run down and a little just bit... Just kind of that
0: uh, hangdog, uh, kind of Gomer Pyle look, if yeah. you think yeah. about the yeah. American sitcom there. You know, the sunken eyes and just kind of the drooping shoulders and just, just kind of beaten down by life, you know. But uh, there's Well, and some, he
1: doesn't have a lot of that uh, joie de vivre in him. You know, he doesn't <laughs> no, look like no. someone who would ever... You know, these executives, they don't want just capable people. They're doing these parties. They want someone who's fun to, to party alongside bold, with, yeah. and he's just yeah. not that...
2: And who has a bit of corrupt uh, who is a bit corrupt that's... well yeah exactly he, he knows how to play he
0: knows how to play the game i mean exactly. I, you know that, that's 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 sort of the 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 more indirect criticism. or hidden indictment it's like is that that uh, you yeah, know the the manager you know some of his uh, dirty deeds may may actually be known or at least the, his willingness to you know cut a shady deal which profits the company as long as you're slick enough to not get caught then then that's good you know you you, you you know if you're you're too by the book if you play by the rules all the time uh that's that's just a little bit too uptight it's a little bit too square and you're not really going to be able to you know make those kind of killer deals that uh help the company advance and that's going to hold you back if you're just almost like too ethical or too honest for your own good so that's another you know, sort of slam at the at the corporate culture that uh, was was happening
1: it's like the main um quality in this leader is the way that he can invent a scapegoat. You know, uh, keep it on the lackeys. When something goes wrong, make sure you've got someone you can throw under the bus. (laughs) If you do that, you're going to be great.
2: Yeah, the whole web of hierarchy is uh, just insane in that one. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Being honest and hardworking will not get you promoted. Uh, Jumping into bed with uh, the boss's daughter will so, uh, <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. That's, uh,
0: just... <laughs> so 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 then it emerges into this pretty. Elaborate, I mean, there's actually two heists. One is a kind of a a dream sequence a kind of an imagined heist which is actually pretty skillfully portrayed because you don't quite recognize what's going on you think oh wow this is this is the robbery because once the once the tension is set up you recognize that yeah this manager is going to have to break into his own vault and find a way to pull it off he cannot enlist any henchmen this has to be a job he, he does personally because risking uh involvement of one other person could unravel everything else so uh but then we we do get to the robbery and it is kind of this uh very taut sequence where uh you know you just don't really know how this is going to turn out and and of course the, the flunky is 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 assigned to the night watch uh, and and so there's yeah I don't want to get into a lot of detailed description of the sequence itself because I think the suspense and the surprise is is uh, very <laughs> is one that would be spoiled but there's just such, such an incredible array of, of of plot reversals and and just very well crafted uh, tensions and exchanges as as the story kind of unfolds. And this is a very short film. I think it's what, 65 minutes. So it's really almost like, it feels almost like a TV episode of some kind of suspense or crime, uh, you know, serial of, of the early 1960s. Um, Yeah. So what are some other thoughts you might have on it?
1: Well, I think that's just exactly right. I mean, when I, when I, what I'm about to say may sound derogative and I don't mean it that way. um, But as far as the films that I've seen in this set, this is the most conventional, the most familiar type of story. Um, not to say it's not enjoyable and, and didn't have all of its surprises, but, you know, this could have been an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents um, with all of its reversals and and just the, the really nice storytelling, the very controlled storytelling. Um, it's short not just because, you know, there's not a lot of story. It's short because it's very taut. You know, uh, Kurohara and, um, and his, his crew, uh, the screenplay by Nobuo Yamada, uh, they've uh, they've they've slimmed this thing down quite nicely so that it, it stays um, interesting and thrilling throughout. It doesn't lag ever, and so like I say, I don't want to make it sound like I'm dissing it when I say that it, it's much more um, familiar than than what we get in the other Kurahara films here. Um, you know, this is this wasn't this isn't. If you just watch this one, it's not actually a great introduction to the rest of the films or the tone in the rest of the films i didn't think um again not to say it's not a great film on its own and something that's worth watching on its own um but it uh i don't know am, am i way off base there and, and again i not knowing a lot about kurohara's other work maybe this is very much what he was up to um throughout all of this time and this is you know some of the other ones were a little bit less uh uh, less typical. Maybe this is a great introduction to his work and the others are kind of the more of the outliers. But, uh, you know, as far as the sets concerned, um, we've got the warped world and we've definitely got what Pablo brought up with the, you know, kind of looking at the hypocrisy of the, the, the wealthy class, um, you know, kind of a send off of, uh, of, uh, what these folks are up to who are profiting on this, um, you know, post-war Japanese society, um, but as far as stylistic and and storytelling, it just it it felt like a very well done, well crafted, um, but familiar film.
2: Yeah, it's uh, very the, the, sorry. Uh, the crafting was was very classical, but I think for me, it, this film may be my secret favorite among uh, the box sets. Uh, first of all, because of the great heist sequences, uh, you know, in complete silence, only. Uh, the, the striking facial expressions of the actors and very slow, slow movements but uh, I also really love uh, the two actors uh Kuro Nishimura and Nobu Kaneko who were two uh, supporting actors who ra- rarely played uh, leading roles and now uh, get to shine in this film yeah? and I believe they both do a great job especially Kuro Nishimura you know uh, the uh, sort sort of haggard one, uh, and by the way, he also plays uh, the lorryman in uh, High in the Bad Sleep Well, uh, Kuzava's the Bad Sleep Well. You may have seen that, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah, oh, He's yeah. It, And and he's a very he is a familiar face as kind of a side character in a lot of these things. I mean, even the Living Skeleton, where he's quite a startling presence. He's just a side character, so it is, it is great to see him uh, shine in this role and, and have his own reversals and, uh, and kind of surprises going on in the plot line.
2: Yeah, well, he was very prolific, uh, as well as uh, Nobu Kaneko, the other, his, uh, his old school friend, uh, who actually was a, a very prolific, <laughs> who would have known a very prolific uh, villain actor, who played a lot of bad guys in many, many Yakuza films. Uh, And of course he also played uh, Kanji Watanabe's son in Kurosawa's Ikiru. I don't know if you
0: recognized him. Uh, no, I no, I did not I did make not that connection. Even... So that, yeah, obviously that was made a good uh, oh, oh, nearly ten years earlier. So he was he was much younger. So, but yeah, uh, th- this is where I I really appreciate your deep immersion in Japanese film, Pablo. Because yeah, I think uh, you know one of the things that you and I had discussed even in our kind of previous conversations is how. Overlooked, or maybe how lost in the shuffle so many of these supporting players are. I mean, we, we in the West do celebrate the great directors, and, of course, uh, actors like Nakadai and, and uh, Mifune, uh, female actors, uh, Setsukahara and, and others. Uh, th- those names have risen to the prominence. But, you know, a lot of times you know, I mentioned <laughs> that, you know, as you're even looking at this, the credits as you're watching these films – the, the, there are big portions of the credits though, where the names don't even get translated <laughs> because yeah. the, a criterion or whoever just assumes that oh, you don't know those people and you don't really care about them. And yet there's a, there's some pretty impressive craftsmanship. And I think that the quality and the... And the um, uh, the creative input from some of those supporting players, whether they're on the screen or behind the camera, putting the whole production together, uh, does deserve better notice than, than probably even I have, uh, been, been able to give just because I'm, <laughs> I cover a lot of, a variety of films as I go through the criterion films and the eclipse series. Uh, but yeah, you, you know, drawing those, those names who were, you know, really performing, uh, on screen over the course of several decades, and and uh, yeah, just just putting it all together is very helpful.
2: If we are on the subject, did you uh, find uh, Tomio Aoki, also known as uh, Token Koso? Oh yeah, and, uh, for boy, sure. He plays the yeah. actor in this movie, and well, I, I see. Really? Not, the, oh, Token Koso is an adult. It. Wow. He's okay. Of, he's of course an adult, but now but I have no idea how he looks like. I see him pop up here and there in yeah, the yeah. credits of some films, but I wasn't able to find him once. I believe he played pit roles uh, for Nikatsu in the 60s, so wow sadly, probably the guy behind the counter in scene four. Or <laughs> exactly,
0: <laughs> in those crowd <laughs> scenes, yes. Well, yeah, Pablo, I know that you, know, you had mentioned the, the heist scene as being particularly well-crafted, and I, I do appreciate just the efficiency and the way that uh, Kurahara just conveyed so much information without a word being spoken, I think, in Chuck Stevens f he it, talks at it, uh, quasi Melvillian or something, and certainly uh, you think about uh, Rafifi and and other you know great uh, New Wave uh, heist films of that of that sort. Uh, but but I just yeah I do appreciate just uh, the 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 way it wraps you in and. And does keep the viewer kind of guessing as to how this thing is all going to, uh, you know, resolve itself. Uh, there are moments of, uh, you know, seeming triumph and and seeming calamity, and then rescued from the ashes. So, yeah, I'll I'll let viewers who haven't seen it, yeah, uh, you know, enjoy the the surprises for themselves. Uh, but I think intimidation. You also kind of get a sense of Kurahara's um, style you know, just on the verge of breaking out. And that certainly is what you see happen full force in the warped ones. So again, some of those uh, up and down perspective shots I mentioned earlier, there is certainly some of that, uh, you know, clearly uh, evidence in, in uh, various moments in intimidation, but with the warped ones, uh, he just kind of hits full throttle and doesn't really let go. So, Trevor, you were going to introduce the Warped Ones. Uh, so let's uh, kind of hear what you have to say about that one.
1: Yeah, so the Warped Ones, where with Intimidation, it is a very, it, you know, it's a it's a film that's uh, plot-centric. I mean, we don't want to discuss the ending of it, which we often don't care too much about because you know a lot of the enjoyment there is just seeing where these characters are going to go with with the warped ones it's it's a kind of a different beast altogether i think we could talk about this one through and through and people would still uh watch it and be surprised at uh, at, at all that goes on and all that uh you know as david mentioned just a second ago all that Kurohara does with the camera to basically just throwing it around and uh you know jiggling it all the time and 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 sometimes he mixes these um these kind of uh, quick uh, pans up to the sky with some really striking editing choices as well just to just to um, play with it and it, it looks seamless i mean it's, it 's it's better than a lot of things that I think we see today where there is a lot of um, quick editing and and quick uh, pans to an edit and you know he he 's just doing some some really interesting things here, um, but the film itself um the warped ones uh, this is uh very different from intimidation um this uh, if if uh you know remember that intimidation came out a few weeks before breathless this came out uh, a few months after breathless uh, still in 1960 and um it's it's uh trying to think of the best way to introduce this without making it sound like uh it's just a derivative of breathless but um We've got uh, Youth Gone Wild here, in a way. I mean, they steal a car. <laughs> they're, they're going, you know, it's just a lot of anger and a lot of uh, crime and a lot of, um, you know, um, uh, lack of direction here. Uh, but it begins with um, an arrest. We've got the kind of two of our, our central characters. Um, we've got Yuki, who is a, a young woman who... Um, you know, kind of uses her her looks to to con people and uh, also to make money, in basically whatever way that she can. In in
0: particular, kind of overweight Western men. Yes, that's that's kind of her gimmick. You know,
1: isn't that the same guy every single time? Get her that she is um kind of lulling in. Yeah, yep, you're exactly right. She's she she knows her who um who will fall for, and you know she's. She's kind of got that uh that um, exotic uh, charm and um, she's uh uh, small and um, anyway, oh, she's, she's she very cute. She's you know, she's got yeah.
0: nice black hair, a winning smile, very flirtatious, very playful. Yeah, and, cute's and I, the right
1: the right description. Oh, for
0: absolutely, her. she's she, adorable, uh, but she's pretty pretty wild and pretty manic as well. But you know, again, just sort of a, a dig at kind of uh, you know sex tourism, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, Western men coming to Japan looking for Oriental hookers and looking to have their fun. I mean, it, certainly that's a vice that uh, continues to this day.
1: Yeah, and she'll get her money both by you know uh, her product, but also because she's setting them up for for theft. You know she's she's kind of got one of her partners in crime who who t- is one of the central characters who is Akira. And um, this first scene, you know, she's over there putting her wiles on, and um, an undercover cop comes and um, and arrests the two of them. And uh, importantly, they've been tipped off by a reporter. Um, that you know hey these are these are two people you need to watch, and um, so the opening credits is basically them getting thrown into prison and um, going through that and it is I, I like how Chuck Stevens um, uh, calls it the kind of a, a bebop. Uh, Uh, pace you know it's very much a lot of freeze frames and then the the words get splattered across the screen and then there's some running and you know it's frenetic it's it's kind of going all over the place and it's it's pretty um uh joyful to watch even though you're watching you know these two people uh just um pent up rage and, and and you know really being pent up they're they're in prison um the film gets moving after the credits upon their release they're back out on the street um and uh you know, we'll get into some of what happens but uh, basically uh, Akira uh, who's never been a stable person uh, has now got even more angst and a- anger so he goes after this beat reporter who kind of turned them in um, not directly though there is one um, pretty awful uh, rundown in, in a stolen car but um, mostly he goes after the, the reporter's um, wife and um, he that that's where the story gets really twisted because, you know, she eventually gets uh, pregnant by uh, Akira's uh, child and um, so she goes to Akira to get help because her husband no longer uh, really cares for her. Um, actually, are they married in this? Is it just I'm not, a girlfriend? I'm not really sure. It might be girlfriend.
0: girlfriend. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's probably in, not prominently emphasized either way. Yeah, the, right?
1: it might not matter. The reason that I even thought of it right then is that I know that, um, you know, they haven't had, as uh, sexual relations for a long time and whether that's because their marriage was dull or because they were like, wait, let's just hold back for a little while. I can't remember, um, but anyway, they it's it's an interesting very twisted uh you know look at her um basically groveling to her rapist because she wants her husband boyfriend whoever um the this reporter to feel again, you know, he this rapist uh, Akira has taken away all of that affection that they once had and um she thinks that he might be able to bring it back or at the very least just continue to punish um this reporter and uh yeah, it's 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 bizarre. It it's, and and it's all throughout the whole thing. It's it's got jazz music playing. That's what oh, yeah. Akira loves. And um, the editing, the 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 camera movement, everything is 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 very uh, helter skelter. Though though not, um, I do want to make a distinction. Even though I brought up Breathless, it it's not this kind of low-fi. Um, you know, things just don't sync up or jagged editing. Um, that Godar was using in Breathless, where you know he's kind of throwing out the conventions. This is this is again a very well crafted. If uh, not that, Breathless isn't. I know he had in- intentionality there in his his choices, but but this one uh, has a flow to it that doesn't um, isn't jarring. It's more jarring just in in the the helter skelter pace and the helter skelter editing and camera zooming and panning. It it isn't. It not quite as jagged and um, uh, deliberately uh, you know repeating edits and different things like that to kind of throw you out of the film um it's 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 still nicely done though it's hard to get away from from the breathless uh, reference um, and you know i I'm assuming that he had some good um uh, knowledge of what Goddar was up to even though it had you know breathless had come out uh, not too long before. The warped ones. It definitely seems very, um, uh, very much in debt to what Breathless was doing. But not just Breathless. I mean, this is a, a Sun Tribe um, subgenre film uh, where you've just got these, these, these youth who, are, you know, uh, sex, violence, and. Um, And uh, music, and uh, you know, all this younger generation, what have we created here in (laughs) Japan? You know, what what is going on here, and do we know about it? And by the way, all of you uppity ups are also pretty corrupt and awful. So,
2: (laughs) well, it's perhaps interesting to note that uh, this film was a so called Taiyosoku film, which in which Nikatsu uh, specialized in during this period, and most often these films were. these films were adaptions of a particular author uh, Shintaro Ishihara the older brother of uh, Yuchiro Ishihara uh, which which, uh, we can also also see in the next film however um, uh, Ishihara was a very much conservative and even reactionary conservative uh, um, writer and later politician and uh, I think that this comes very much through in these uh, films, like uh, the accusations are uh, all young people or teenagers are sex-crazed and uh, alcohol uh, addicted and <laughs> uh, you know and jazz music is, uh, is dooming our youths to their certain demise or (laughs) something like that. But uh, actually, I think that in the hands of talented filmmakers who were also most often young filmmakers, these films often are much more subversive than their author had intended. Uh, So The Warped Ones was not written by Ishihara, but it's very much a film in the style of Ishihara's novels with, I think, a... Much more suppressive uh, force at its core than much, much many others, many other TAIOSUKO uh, um, uh, films like Crazed uh, Fruit, for example, which is also part of the Criterion collection.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazed Fruit. We did a podcast on that several years ago, and and some of those films do have kind of a maybe a more of a moralistic type of ending where the youth gone wild kind of end up paying the heavy consequence for their recklessness and for their misdeeds and and i think you you definitely see some of this this tension here where uh you know in and that early setup you know we've got the kid getting you know arrested for pickpocketing and and his girlfriend for prostitution and the fact that the media was kind of ex- Exploiting that by by you know sort of you know making a photo opportunity and, and news coverage based on these wayward youth and and all the trouble that they 're stirring up and all the you know corruption and depravity that 's infesting our society i mean that that was very much a a, a very contemporary concern. Within the the Japanese society. And so on both sides of the issue, the the young people who were kind of reveling in this uh, rebellion and this kind of new freedom and this breaking away from the old traditions, uh, they could find heroes to identify with in this film. Uh, and others like it, and then there was the other generation, the older folks that are saying, "Wow, look at these these crazy kids i mean this is this is reckless, this is dishonorable and And this film sort of seems to sort of document uh, some of the the troubles that that our young people are running into, so the directors could kind of play it both ways, but then you know how do you how do you wrap this film up? How do you resolve it uh, and, and even and then and, and that 's kind of where the the ending of the warped ones really does kind of uh, you know kind of hits you right between the eyes it's kind of a jolting uh, climax maybe i'll get to that in just a bit but you know the fact is these are kids i mean the, you know you, you know trevor you had said that after he's arrested he goes to prison but technically speaking he actually went to a youth reformatory and and when they were released they were you know uh, the, the lead character and his kind of sidekick that he met there are really just just You know, untamed youth. I mean, they're just young guys, and they're just seething with with energy and vitality, and just just roaring. They weren't reformed. They they were definitely (laughs) not reformed. They did their time, and it's like they did not waste a minute in getting into mischief. You know, finding a car to steal, finding a you know finding their old uh, you know girlfriend to, to pick up and go on a joyride with, finding a customer to rob, and just you know just going full throttle for, for whatever kind of trouble could be found, uh, that day. Uh, yeah. So, so we, as we get to the conclusion then, I mean, we, we do see the, uh, you know, the corruption of, of relationships and, you know, I, I could not help but think about the, you know, the, you know, the rape scene where, uh, after they've run down the newspaper reporter and basically kidnapped, uh, his, you know, wife slash girlfriend, uh, you know, right off the street, and pretty cold blooded, and then they basically, you know, uh, you know, drive her off into the woods, and and uh, this is where he has his way with her. You know, we think about just the uh, you know, the scandal of recent weeks: uh, uh, a very prominent athlete who uh, had been uh, you know arrested and and uh, tried by jury for rape in this country, out in California, and uh, got off with a pretty light sentence. It's like I couldn't just sort of. Sit and watch that scene with like, oh man, these young people are just kind of you know wild bunch going for it. I mean, this is this is pretty disturbing stuff, you know, when you really put it in a human context of what they're actually doing. Uh, so these are not necessarily uh, you know admirable heroes to to be celebrated. They these are these are people doing pretty destructive and violent things, um, uh, and yet there is certainly a, a charisma that they have. Is as uh, as he you know just you know swirls with in time with the jazz music and just you know goes off in this incredibly adrenaline fueled adventure uh kind of aimless uh, uh, certainly nihilistic uh in its in its uh ambitions uh but but pretty exhilarating i guess if you just sort of lend yourself over to you know this uninhe- un- uninhibited you know, abandon of, of of all the good manners and social norms that uh, most of us have, you know, assimilated into over the course of our lives.
2: Yeah, especially uh, the main character. Uh, I love the actor. We will see him again, Tomio Yes, uh,
0: he's definitely got a another role ahead of us in uh, Black Sun coming up next week.
2: Yeah. Well, but I think um, it's a great. Um, the great, or the greatest aspect about the warped ones, is that it lacks any of the normal uh, morality, morality found in these yes. other films. Yes. And Which
0: makes them more conventional and more predictable. Exactly. This one here really keeps you in that point of tension right up to the very last minute of the film.
2: Yeah, and it shows uh, more or less cause and effect, or if not, perhaps not cause and effect, but uh, it shows that actually. No side, the parents or the elder and the young are to be glorified. Both are equal, equally despicable people, actually. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. yeah,
1: It's a, it's a really nice uh, touch because it, it shows how complex the situation actually is. It, there's no simple solution here. And it isn't just saying, look, if we could only um, straighten out this, then everything would be just fine. As David said, it, it, all the way until the very end, Um it's just a mess. I mean, not that not even that the ending isn't a big mess, but it's it's a it's a conclusion to the film. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, but yeah, it shows just how complicated it is. And I like how you brought up uh, Ishihara uh, Pablo because you know he had won the Akutagawa Prize when he was fairly young. He was he was actually fairly young when uh, when this was made. Um, he was let's see, when was he born? Nineteen thirty four. Nineteen thirty two. No, no, no. Yes. Yes. And so he was pretty young during all of this time. He was uh, he was a university student when he wrote Season of the Sun, um, which came out and won the Akutagawa Prize. And um, I don't know a whole lot about him other than, you know, he eventually went into politics and became the, the mayor of Tokyo later on. And, and basically, you know, I think um, many people don't particularly like his um, policies or politics, but you can see where someone like him would want um the the solution you know i didn't i'm not just exploring the problem and um how all this is going on but i want to suggest a solution here whereas uh kurahara seems to be much more like look this is all everybody here has has uh Blame and everybody here is being pretty reprehensible. We've got a society that that uh, cultures these, um, even with its hate. You know, even even as you try to push against these um, these youth, you're actually just uh, breeding them. Um, uh, it's, so yeah, yeah, clamping down on rebellion is is
0: not going to make it go away. It's just going to intensify the protests, and we see that time and time again. I mean, there are certainly oppressive societies where they finally do you know just beat people down and, mm. and shut them up but you know if you have any aspirations to being a free and open society on any level you know you, you you can't just stifle these voices you've got to find an outlet for them that allows them to express what's on their mind and in their hearts
2: but that's perhaps the issue uh, why the solution of the uh, developed ones is so open-ended uh, especially because he uh, doesn't uh, condone or even condemn uh, his characters. Uh, there can be no solution, simply because uh, evil cannot be vanquished and, or the evil cannot corrupt cannot, uh, the good ones. There's uh, literally no solution, simply because uh, we are talking about uh, human beings here <laughs> and not uh, you know not stereotypes in some ways.
0: Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I think about the Imamura box set, you know, the pigs and battleships uh, criteria. I mean, films made at the same time that really are just kind of these full throated <laughs> cries of protest of just there's something broken, there's something wrong. I mean, yes, there's prosperity. Yes, there's opportunities for advancement. There's material wealth. Uh, there's there's a lot of interesting things going on. But there's just this kind of fundamental flaw at the heart of it that we just can't seem to, uh, you know, resolve.
1: Now, and David, you said a little earlier, it's hard to sympathize with these. Did, did you think that there was, um, that that was part of it, that maybe they were, we were supposed to, because, I don't know. I never I never, Not I never sympathize, got the sense in a way
0: like oh these poor children but I mean they're they're brought up I mean they're they're sexy they're they're hip they're cool. I mean they're they're wild and energetic and free. So that's that's the kind of you know charismatic aspect, you know. They they they've got this you know uh, opportunity to just sort of you know act on their impulses that You know, a lot of people, a lot of uh, mature adults and responsible people deny themselves because they recognize there's going to be trouble or or it's going to hurt people's feelings or it's going to, you know, just create extra complications. And this this, I, I see these characters as kind of, you know, acting out that kind of fantasy of just. I'm just gonna just do whatever the hell I want to do, and nobody's gonna get in my way. And and of course, you may have to, you know, you've got your scrapes with the law. You go to detention for a while, but you come right back out and you just do it again because that's just who we are, and that's what we're all about. And and again, these these characters, you know, being you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty one years old, whatever they are, uh, they're at that stage of life where you have sort of the the faculties and the you know you know, the physical and and somewhat, you know, intellectual development of adulthood, maybe not the full emotional (laughs) development, but they're, they're, they're young and impulsive and they just haven't really conformed to social norms yet. And these kids in particular are really out there on the extremes uh, of, of, of how they conduct themselves. So, so they're, they're, role models in a way because they they look good and they're and they're charming and they're funny and 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 they don't you know they don't really care what you all think about them and there's certain there's something kind of attractive to that to a certain mindset certainly to the to the younger moviegoers who who might uh, look to them just like, you know, a lot of kids in in youth culture from the 60s on up have always looked to those bad boys and bad girls. And, and that's another thing that, that's remarkably prescient about this film. I mean, this, this anticipates a lot of what was going to happen in other countries in the 60s where you had a lot of, you know, uh, rebels without a cause and becoming mainstream entertainment characters. Uh, 1960, that's kind of early for this kind of Flamboyant you know anarchist attitude to just kind of take center stage
1: I did think that it still shows the the that they are very misguided in a way i I, I felt like they they you know yes they 're sexy, but they 're also kind of miserable i mean they 're always sweating all over the place got this is pent up energy that just you know seeps through their pores. And there seems to be a lot of um, dissatisfaction, you know, with everything, Um, you know, you've often got Akira coming in and and finding um, uh, his his friends in bed together. And you just get this sense that it doesn't bother him morally, but he's just got this pent up uh, emotion in him and he, he can't quite figure out what to do with any of it and 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 he you know, I I also think that Kurahara does does a decent job showing the victim in this and her own just um you know, how much this just messed up her life and and um how despicably she is treated by everybody um after the rape. Uh, you know, she, she you know, Akira even steals her purse from her when she comes in to, to talk to him. Um so I think that there is a little bit of the, yeah, they, they might be sexy, but the, the, this is kind of, they're kind of scum as well. And, and I, I'm, I'm cu- I would be very curious to, to have watched this back when I was a little more sympathetic, maybe, um, to any of this, because, you know, for me, that's the stuff that stands out. I, and, and maybe more than other films, um might even stand out to youth who look at it and go, oh, that's That guy's cool. Do you see how he just stole that car <laughs> just off the street? Yeah, you right, know? right.
0: Well, I, I think about a film like spring breakers from a few years ago where, you know, I mean, the, everybody's sexy and cool and, and hip, but I look at it as an adult and say, these people are messed up, <laughs> you know? And, and, and so I, I sort of see a director maybe uh, or a production company even that's kind of having it both ways, you know, like, uh, you know how are people going to interpret these characters, and, and your interpretation is really going to be based on where you are at, at, in life and where you fit the society.
2: Exactly. Interesting. But yeah, I believe that Kurara. Also, I I agree with uh, Trevor on that. That he shows very clearly how really isolated they are, how meaningless uh, their life is going to be, and at the moment is. You know, they uh, are don't seem to be able to have any close bondings to uh, other other human beings and uh, they just go on and on and it's just this this uh, nihilistic meaninglessnessness <laughs> <Sorry. Yeah. laughs> which really yeah. impressed me in this and especially for its time just how how uh, how desperate desperate uh, these characters seem in order, all their, uh, in all their uh, hedonistic behavior, you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, th- maybe on that note, let's just kind of switch over to I Hate But Love. This is the third film in the set here, and we're kind of flipping from the very bottom of the social hierarchy <laughs> up to the very top in some ways, at least as far as youth culture is concerned. Uh, this is a very unique film in the set in that it's the only one that was shot in color, uh, it's one that uh, stars Yujiro uh, Ishihara. We've already talked about his brother, the author slash politician. But Yujiro Ishihara is the younger brother. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, he's commonly, you know, referred to as the Japanese Elvis. And you definitely get a sense of why that is just by watching this one film. Even if you haven't seen, you know, Crazed Fruit or uh, I Am Waiting, which was uh, Kurahara's directorial debut from 1957, that's one that's going to be uh covered later on in the Niketsu Noir set uh, Yujiro Ishihara is an incredibly charismatic screen presence he He just has a great uh, facial expression haircut body uh, he he you know and he's inhabiting in this film a character not that different than who he had become in real life. Uh, a mega celebrity, somebody who was just the it man of his time. He he just sort of embodied everything that uh, Japanese young people seem to aspire to in terms of his, his comportment, his his cool factor. Uh, he did have a singing talent. Uh, you know, I I don't know. I, I'm not as enough of an aficionado of Japanese. Pop music to say that he was especially brilliant in the way that I think Elvis Presley was an incredible singer and performer. I actually uh, like him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So oh, I, I think he he does fine. I just haven't heard enough to sort of say I've been exposed to his whole body of work. So, so tell us just a little bit about him as a performer, uh, Pablo. What uh, do you know about A friend of mine
2: uh, is a big Ishihara fan from Japan and he sent me a few of his albums. Well, uh, well I I hate, uh, I really hate 70s music so yeah. <laughs> I don't <laughs> you, you know with the synthesizers and yeah. oh, the screeching pop I know not my beer not my stuff but <laughs> I really like him in the early to mid 50s uh, when he just had his big break uh, very soothing soothing very very yeah, very charming energetic Energetic, um, basically, anchor, if you know what an anchor is. It's the word for a sort of Japanese pop ballad.
0: Okay, yeah, kind of a a crooner of a sort. He's not like a a rock and roll type singer. He he sings kind of easy listening, kind of ballady type of songs. And there's a couple examples in this film in in, uh, I Hate But Love uh, where you get to sort of hear at least, uh, and I'm sure in the marketing of the film, it was really important that he had that opportunity to to sing at least a couple of songs. Uh, Unlike the Elvis Presley movies that were made in this same era where Elvis was busting out the song about every 10 to 12 minutes or so, uh, and there was a whole showcase of uh, an album soundtrack and all that, you don't get quite as much of uh, uh, Yujiro, the performer, uh, in a musical way anyways, but you definitely get a lot of him... As a talent and as a screen personality,
2: yeah, if you yeah. watched sorry if you watch the film, you don't get the impression that he was that big of a shot uh, at singing, but right. he actually was he was incredibly prolific he, he recorded about a uh, hundred albums i guess I, I believe and that's amazing a hundred albums yeah it's and more than two thousand songs, so he was a giant uh, star in every sense of the word, not only as an actor. I mean, Elvis did movies too, but uh, I don't know, I can't remember how many films Elvis made, but, uh, I mean, Ishihara made almost uh, 200 films or even more. Wow. Yeah, that, and, yeah, I'm, I'm and, sure he's
0: outpaced Elvis on both of those in yeah, terms of just sheer prolific, just you know, prolific,
2: And I think that gets very well reflected in I Hate But Love, uh, a guy who's constantly in demand, who constantly <laughs> has to go to another another uh, show or to another fan meeting, record another song or star in another movie. And uh, I I don't know too much about. about Ishihara, Ishihara, sorry, uh, in his personal life, but I guess he could very well relate to that, (laughs) what he has to go through in this (laughs) film.
0: When you're you're creating movies and recording music at that level, what time do you have for a personal life? I mean, you are just always go, go, go. And I mean, I'm sure he was very well compensated for all of that. And I'm sure he found time to take vacations and have fun and live the good life but it took an incredible toll i mean a a, a human being is a human being and after a while you're just going to get worn out from having to maintain that pace and just the pressure of just being on and in the spotlight all the time that that you know some people are constitutionally better prepared to handle that some people seek it out and, and actually seem to enjoy it but everybody has their limit i imagine
2: and he was actually also one of the first uh, actors, to, one of the first Japanese actors to be rich in in uh, a sort of Hollywood sense. Uh, simply because Nikatsu had switched to a actor-based system. So in contrast to other studios where actors were paid on a monthly basis and uh, really uh, didn't earn all that much where they earned Certainly much more than the average salaryman, but they weren't, they didn't earn millions. But uh, Ishihara (laughs) very well did. He was really, he was a uh, enthusiastic yacht sailor and drove fancy sports cars. So he was very much a star, also in the Hollywood sense. Unlike, say, someone like uh, Tatsuya Nakadai or Toshiro Mifune, who were, Mm -hmm. Sorry?
0: Oh no no that's good yeah that's a, that's a great point so that, that they were you know they they were big stars and i'm sure they lived a very comfortable you know fairly affluent life but they didn't use that leverage in the same way uh, that Yujiro uh, did apparently that's kind of where you're going with that Is, he, he he had the ability to say you know pay me big time uh you know elvis type money uh if you want me to be in your films and because he had just been elevated to that lofty yeah, pantheon of, of mega superstars uh, he was able to get paid like that Uh, he was also paired in this film with uh, Ruriko Asioka who I guess is one of the top female actors of her time I don't know that her fame and reputation quite matches that of Yujiro but she also has a very you know uh, attractive presence on screen and so you really do have to uh, you know Young and beautiful Japanese celebrities, uh, perhaps playing a version of themselves. And so the setup of the story is uh, Daisuku, the Yujiro Ishihara character. He's, in this case, uh, he's kind of like a radio and TV commentator in fact when I first saw that opening scene it's like oh he's he's podcasting <laughs> he's doing what we do he's got his little microphone and his little uh console there not quite a laptop like the, like we have but yeah it sort of looked like a familiar situation and so but he's he's on the air and everybody's listening in but he is just so sick of it all and once he finishes his program he's just You know, hightailing it to his apartment, tearing his clothes off, and climbing into bed because he just needs a break. He is just worn to shreds. Uh, And he has a girlfriend who's also a manager. And so the question is in this relationship, which role takes priority? And they even kind of consciously refer, are we in girlfriend mode or are we in manager mode as they have conversations? Because she's the one who books his schedule, arranges his appearances. Obviously, she's getting a cut of the proceeds, and so that's how she's making her living. But they have a romantic relationship of sorts. It's not really romantic, even though it's just kind of a uh, uh, kind of a uh, platonic relationship where they've just chosen not to get sexually intimate. They don't even kiss because, uh, even though they're sort of committed to each other, they don't want to get complicated as far as the business transactions are concerned so you almost get a sense of a of a relationship that's kind of on hold because they have to sort of make all the money and ride this celebrity wave for as long as it lasts and then once he becomes just an ordinary, you know, citizen again, although a very rich one, then maybe perhaps he'll pursue the relationship. But in the meantime, he's in the midst of this personal turmoil of just maybe he's just had more than his fill of this fame and the celebrity and all the pressures that come with it. And he's just looking for a way out and, um, and a way out presents itself when he interviews a young woman on his program who is, uh, I, you might call her kind of a medical missionary of sorts. So she's, uh, she's trying to raise awareness for a clinic that is run by a man that she is in love with. Uh, he's a doctor down in the Southern, uh, Prefectures of Japan, kind of a countryside, maybe an impoverished district where the people are poor and they just need some kind of public assistance for basic health care. But they need a jeep down there. They need to get a jeep into this remote location about 900 miles away. And in a very impulsive whim, uh, Daisaku decides that he's going to be the guy to drive that Jeep. And he (laughs) kind of uh, radically uh, departs the set and throws his whole career into turmoil. And now the question is, is this some kind of elaborate publicity stunt or is he truly breaking out of the mold and so the movie, which was kind of this offbeat romantic comedy, but, but, you know, about a superstar and his, uh, attractive girlfriend slash manager, now all of a sudden becomes a road picture as, uh, he's taken off in a Jeep and he can't be stopped and nobody can tell him what to do, uh, and yet his girlfriend, Noriko, is, uh, you know, trying to keep tabs on him to make sure that nothing bad happens. And she just wants to know where he's going and what he's up to and, and how this is all going to turn out. And that's kind of the the, uh, the little hook that pulls us into this story. So uh, I I really enjoy this movie. I really enjoy uh, Yujiro and, and just kind of watching him uh, do his thing. And uh, I enjoyed the travelog aspect. It kind of reminds me of Trevor. We've talked about this. set. you've mentioned it many times. And it travels with Hiroshi Shimizu. This is kind of a oh, yeah. it travels of of Japan of the early sixties, and you get to see some parts of the Japanese countryside that uh, don't normally make it onto camera. But uh, you know that I have a lot of nice things to say about this movie. I, I really just find it very entertaining and and uh, a very enjoyable watch. Uh, Trevor, what's your thoughts
1: on this one? well very different from the warped ones uh you know this one this one is was delightful i in fact i i you asked me which one i wanted to do and i thought oh, i'll just do the warped ones because that's what i had seen most recently i hadn't yet watched i hate but love i was tempted to write to you back and say well let me do i hate but love david i think you're better (laughs) equipped to do the warped ones anyway and i hate but love is just so you know just such a just such a nice picture in a way, you know. I mean, it begins, as, as you said, almost like a sitcom with these two, uh, you know, their freeze frames again with the opening credits as, as they're kind of loving frustrations, you know, as she wakes him up and throws him into the cold shower. And, you know, she walks out smiling and the freeze frames right there with him in agony and her just, ah, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, pretty cute, <laughs> <You know>? definitely. <laughs> it's very cute. Um, and, and just, uh, you know, the whole first part is she's um, writing the number of days that they've been, um, together not romantically but as a a team you know to really promote him um they've been together 730 days at the beginning of the of the picture and i really like just that that nice setup and um and her own you know she's she's taking her job seriously but she she does love him and does want to be with him and I, i like the transition that it shows on the road where she's she's chasing him down primarily because hey you're throwing away your life and this is you know my career as well well, um, you're in breach of contract. Uh, you need to come back. But eventually, as she just kind of starts to question, you know what what is he doing? Who is this man, and why do I want to follow him? As, as she kind of discovers herself, um, and and you know, she's much more dynamic, I think, and a little bit more interesting even than he is as as that part goes along. And um, you know, that meanwhile, there's this uh, this uh, missionary woman who's telling her, "Oh, love is is." Just the hope for love. You know? It's very
0: and, idealistic. I mean, their relationship uh, is based on letters that they've written to each other. So yes. you've got really two different versions of couplehood. You've got the very money-minded and and glamour and fame and and, and then you And play, you know, they yeah, play yeah, together. Exactly. And now you've got this idealistic, uh, transcendent notion of... Of principles and service to humanity and and all of that. I
1: I actually just finished um, reading Middlemarch, George Eliot's book Middlemarch, for the first time. And, you know, the the missionary woman kind of reminded me of Dorothea in that book where it's like, you know, I'm going to marry this old kind of awful person because our life is going to be devoted to... The good, you know, I'll just be there to support and how wonderful my life would be. And that's kind of how the missionary mo- uh, woman is in this, in this, uh, picture in, in contrast to Noriko, who's, you know, no, I, I want him, yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to be with him. And I, and, and, you know, we've been holding off all this time on our romantic relationship, but I, I want physical presence. I want, um, I want all of that, and and I can't necessarily not be with him. You know, like I said, she's chasing him down because, you know, you need to come back. Eventually, she's just chasing him down because she wants to go where he goes. And it's a pretty beautiful thing.
2: And the the first meeting between uh, this uh, idealistic girl and... uh, (laughs) Uh, uh, yeah. So-called boyfriend—it's it's completely anti-anti. Uh, you? It's wonderful.
0: <laughs> it it is—it's wonderful, but it's, it's also kind of painfully awkward. And, oh, and I mean, oh, exactly. the way it's all set <laughs> <come laughs> up—and it is really one of the climaxes of the film, where you know you sort of see that these ideals <laughs> kind of live better in the abstraction and in the reality. You know, when they're finally face to face. Yeah, like you say, Pablo, it's just kind of false that, flat. That
2: was actually for me the funniest moment.
0: <laughs> yeah, so so what are some other thoughts you have on the film, Pablo? Definitely interested in your take on it.
2: Well, <laughs> first off, uh, perhaps you did recognize Hiroyuki Nagato, uh, the guy who plays uh, his other manager or his producer, I think. Uh, he, of course, also plays the role of, uh, or, uh, of the friend in The Warped Ones. Or the unwilling benefactor, to say the least. Did you recognize him, perhaps?
0: (laughs) I I didn't make the connection, no. Uh, He's
2: a face that uh, pops up in all of these films, yeah? Also, a a rather nice character character actor. But uh, as you... Actually, you did say almost everything I I had in mind. Uh, I absolutely adored this movie. I thought it was very lovely, and... Uh, perhaps it could have been a conventional conventional it p- could have been more conventional than uh, we would expect from Kurahara if the camera work wasn't again so free and uh, brilliant in the end.
0: Oh, I, I think it's really extraordinary. I mean, he's he's really you know he's putting cameras on tops of buildings. There's some amazing handheld stuff. I mean that that final sequence uh, between Daisuke and Noriko as they kind of consummate their relationship is is really rather raw and earthy and sexy and pretty pretty powerful. You know, I mean as he sort of tears his shirt off and they just kind of go running off into the hills. And again, you got the camera right up into the sun. I mean, probably just (laughs) burning that lens to a crisp, you know. And (laughs) uh, and and and, you know that this is where you know we. I would say you know this is not an Elvis movie because an Elvis movie, you know, typically ends in the most pat, conventional you know bland vanilla white bread whatever you want to call it kind of you know uh syrupy conclusions uh I, and this one here again has a very kind of a cutting edge to it and and some i think there are some moments of of real lyricism and, and, and poetry you know some of the some of the uh characteristics of of the longing of the noriko and these kind of you know uh, uh What's, what's the word? Kind of these these fade out shots and kind of this montage sequences. Some of some of the uh, adventurous portions where they're kind of up in the mountains and. And this this jaguar, this beautiful uh, you know sports car that that we see uh, Daisku driving at the beginning of the film, it just ends up getting trashed <laughs> over the course of this journey and it's it 's just kind of a it, to me there 's a kind of a symbol of of pursuit and and longing and and dedication and, and true love, if you will that you know at the, at the initial impression seems kind of mercenary you know she 's just you know she's just latched onto him because of his looks and his fame and his money and you know she could be co- portrayed as this kind of classic you know gold digger type of character and yet she she kind of transcends that role and, and i agree I, I you know that that the noriko character actually has a more interesting arc and progression uh as you sort of get to in touch with Dif- different depths of of her character, uh, whereas daisuku really kind of stays a sullen, spoiled brat, <laughs> the, <laughs> most of the, the whole time, you know. But it, but it is. It's just a very. Um, there's just a, a so much variety in, in this particular film, and uh, I, I, you know, it's it's a film I've watched several times over the years, and just really always find it a very pleasant pastime. And just you know, there's there's some there's some. Genuine, poignant emotion. There's some good laughs. Uh, there's some some just eye popping visuals. So there's there's a lot to like, and and it's interesting because some of the reviews I've read sort of dismiss this one as kind of a lesser film. And you know, I mean, it's this is not you know. You know, Kobayashi level masterpiece or anything like that, but it's a it's it's a very satisfying excursion into again mainstream populist Japanese cinema of the early sixties.
2: And it doesn't aspire to be a social critical (laughs) masaki no 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 exactly. And I
0: don't always feel like having such a heavy (laughs) serving on my plate either, you know,
2: especially for Japanese films. It's uh, very rarely you get a lightweight, just cheerful movie. It's most, as you know, most Japanese films are rather downbeat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, let me just come back to the Elvis comparison. Sure. I think what um, sets them apart is the fact that these films with Yujiro uh, were directed by young directors who were only a few years older than the stars themselves. Yeah. While the Elvis films, of course, were, by shot, were shot by veteran directors who sometimes had directed films in the silent age who simply mm. couldn't relate to Elvis and this whole race that was going around him. Uh, so I believe that's a very strong reason that uh, these films hold up so well because Nikatsu carefully picked young directors who uh, that held the same sentiments as... They're actors, and thus could relate to them. And...
0: Yeah, and I think Elvis's own management team didn't really want him becoming too radicalized or too disruptive of the status quo. I mean, they they kind of wanted to make him very safe and commodified, and and you know, play by the rules, color within the lines. And, and wait, I I
1: heard he was the devil. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, there there were there were. Uh, And and perhaps some of those more strident criticisms are what led his managers to say, we have to play it safe. We can't feed into those kind of, uh, you know, conspiracy theories or those kind of uh, reactionary views. And so, you know, Elvis became a little bit more of a bland character uh, as, as he progressed. I mean, he still made some great music, and his movies certainly have some, you know, popcorn value to them. They're fun for what they are, but... Uh, I I wouldn't really aspire. Or I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call them art. They are you know, they're a commodity. So yeah. So a, any final comments on uh, on uh, I hate but love? I think we've had a excellent conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, digging into it. But uh, any summaries before we kind of wrap things up here? I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah no. I, I think. Too and 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 yeah these next two films uh you know even though it's only two and we've covered three uh, those these next two films are 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 very substantial and i think we're going to have a very uh you know a very uh Interesting and, and enjoyable conversation when we get together again next week. So good. Well, I think we've covered the first three of this set, and uh, I definitely enjoy uh, feedback from listeners. So if you are new to these films or if you've been appreciating them for a while, please find us. Uh, Eclipse Viewer on Twitter, uh, or you can just uh, kind of connect with us through the uh, Criterion Cast uh, page. There's links to both my site, Trevor's, and Pablo's. So uh, we really welcome any kind of reactions you may have. And uh, thank you for listening in. So until we get again get together again next week, uh, this is the Eclipse Viewer episode forty-four, uh, the Warp World of Koryashi Kurahara, part one. We'll see you all next week. Bye bye.